Hello and welcome to episode 22 of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we tickle the feet of literature and see if we can coax it into laughing. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the Mathematical Mystery Series of Comic Thrillers published by Farago Books. Speaking of which, book five is currently with my editor and is therefore in one of those Schrodinger superposition states where it is simultaneously the best and the worst book ever. And I am, as usual, struggling to deal with this. Anyway, uh, my guest today is fellow Farago author Beth Miller, the author of six novels, including the Kindle top 20 bestseller, The Missing Letters of Mrs. Bright, and most recently, The Woman Who Came Back to Life. She has also written two non-fiction books on, respectively, Shakespeare and The Archers, which I think covers pretty much all the bases. As she says in her absolutely brilliant Amazon bio, before writing books, Beth did a lot of different jobs. She worked in schools, shops, offices, hospitals, students' unions, basements, from home, in her car and up a tree. Okay, not up a tree. She has been a sexual health trainer, a journalist, a psychology lecturer, a PhD student, a lousy alcohol counsellor, and an inept audio typist. I just wonder if a lousy alcohol counsellor is someone who counsels people on where they buy the lousiest alcohol. I don't know. She has sold pens, breads and condoms, not in the same shop. She has taught parents how to tell if their teenagers are taking drugs. Clue, they act like teenagers. And has taught teenagers how to put on condoms. Clue, they won't really be a cucumber. And that has really spoiled one of my misconceptions. Anyway, uh, finally, she has also taught rabbis how to tell if their teenagers are druggedly putting condoms on cucumbers. Welcome, Beth. Oh, wow, that was quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> it's all your own words. I know, but... <laughs> I know, but now you've thrown them back in my face and I'm, I'm appalled at what I've written. <laughs> Although it is all true. It is all true. <laughs> wow. Well, we'll talk more about Beth's work later on. But first, we're going to talk about the book she's chosen to discuss, which is Sue Townsend's classic, The Secret Diary of Asian Mole, age 13 and three quarters. So, Beth, for those of us who haven't read it, and I can't believe that there are many who haven't, would you like to give us a quick summary of the plot and tell us what it was that made you choose it? Yes, I was really thrilled when um, we were talking about uh, books. When I was, I kind, well, I was going to say you kindly let me on the podcast. I sort of pushed my way on the podcast, um, <laughs> and you, you kindly let me. But I was really thrilled that no one had chosen Adrian Mole yet, because well, I'm, I'm amazed that um, you know it was still left to be chosen. It's such a classic. And over the course of doing a bit of research preparing for this, I had forgotten just how massive it was in the 1980s. The first book in the series, it's a series actually, but the first book, the famous one, Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, age 13 and three quarters, was actually the top paperback in the 1980s. It beat Geoffrey Archer, uh, Jackie Collins, Barbara Taylor Bradford, and um, it was just wow. unbelievably successful. So the, the first book, uh, The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole, is well, it's, it's the secret diary of Adrian Mole. He's a, at the time that the book starts, he's uh, 13 and three quarters, and it's his secret musings about his life. He's, um, he lives in Leicester, and he has literary aspirations, which obviously uh, a lot of young teenagers reading it were very drawn to that, because uh, there's lots of us who had literary aspirations. He's got rather annoying parents. He's secretly in love with the new girl at school, Pandora, and he has to look after a really grumpy old age pensioner called Bert Baxter. And I was going to say that's pretty much it, but on every page, there's something funny and something mm. um, new. And um, it's just about his life, really. And it's about it's about a lot more than his life. It's about teenage life in the 80s and also teenage life, I think, generally. I think there's a lot of real universal truths in there. It's about families. It's about 
politics. Uh, Sue Townsend was sort of never made any secret of her sort of left-leaning politics. And but I think she weaves that in brilliantly. And it's, but it's just, it's laugh out loud funny. But also one thing that I hadn't really realised, because I, I don't think I've read it since I was in my teens. I read it when it came out. Adrian and I are actually, we were born in the same school year. I'm a few months <laughs> old. <laughs> I'm a few oh. months older than him, but we're of the same age. And so obviously it really resonated. But what I hadn't realised until I reread it was how much of it I absorbed unknowingly that became kind of, you know, part of my life. Just all my little phrases that I've got, all the little, a load of my sort of moral rules and things come from the Adrian Mole books. I hadn't really quite realised just how um, significant it was, you know, all the way that Adrian sees the world. I think I've kind of really absorbed. So, um, yeah, I don't think I've summarised it really well. But yes, I can't believe there's anyone who hasn't read it. But if you haven't read it or if you haven't read it for a while, it's so worth going back to it. It's just an absolute cracker that totally stands the test of time. And I was still laughing out loud. All the bits that made me laugh out loud when I was a teenager are still making me laugh out loud even now. Yeah. I think that gets me is, is how spectacularly bleak it is. Oh, God, it's so bleak, yeah. <laughs> Although, actually, it's an absolute uh, idyll compared to the last book in the series. Oh, God, so, yes. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, what, what the, the other weird thing about it is, although this book and the second book, which I kind of, I think I see as one book, the second book came out a couple of years after, mm. uh, and it's called The Growing Pains of Adrian Mole, and that's a cracker as well. And I think I see them as kind of one um, whole book, which isn't surprising, actually, because I think when it was filmed for telly, they did both books. But what I hadn't really locked onto for some reason is she wrote a lot of sequels and I hadn't really looked at them at all. And then uh, for the purpose of this podcast, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll read all of them. And then I realised I didn't have time to read all of them. <laughs> um, and I was giving myself quite an assignment there. So I decided that I'd just read the last one, which mm. is uh, The Prostrate Years. A prostrate uh, rather than prostate, though, that's a source of much humour. Yeah. which was written, I think, in 2009. And, oh, my God, that is... I mean, it's still funny, but it's kind of slit your wrist bleak, really. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, it's a, there is a bleak streak running through the whole thing. Yeah, because it's basically about a totally self-absorbed central character just completely fell into notice the world crashing down around him. Yeah, It's, it's yeah. not so much an unreliable <laughs> narrator as an oblivious narrator. <laughs> he's staggeringly oblivious. I mean, even in... You know, even when he's in 40 in the last book, he's still pretty, he's not quite as oblivious, but he still definitely doesn't quite notice some of the crucial things that are going on around him. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of the, the source of the humour in the first couple of books is that he has has no idea how to interpret things that are going on around him and invariably gets it wrong if he even notices the things at all. Mm. And it's just, you know, part of that is what makes it so funny. Um, it's the self-absorption of the teenager, which is just done so brilliantly. Mm. I mean, you could you could pretty much open it up and at any page and find something worth reading. And there's, there's, there's a lovely bit about his friend Nigel, who's who's been given a wonderful new bike for um, for Christmas. Because Nigel came round on his new bike this morning. He's got a water bottle, a mileometer, a speedometer, a yellow saddle, and very thin racing wheels. It's wasted on Nigel. He only goes to the shops and back on it. If I had it, I would go all over the country and have an experience. <laughs> I just... <laughs> uh, 
just it's, I'm still laughing it, you know I just recently reread that and I'm still laughing I mean some of it is I mean I remember the first time that I read my favorite section probably in the whole thing which I think is a lot of people's favorite section is about when Adrian tries to paint over his noddy wallpaper with black paint <laughs> And I don't know why, it's just, it's like one of the seminal funny things of my youth. And I, I mean, I, I used to cry with laughter reading it. So when I reread it recently, I thought, oh, it's probably not going to be quite as funny. And I'm still crying with laughter because, mm. he, you know, he really wants this kind of angsty teenage bedroom. And as he says, naughty and the Toyland idiots aren't going to cut it. So he gets black paint and goes over it, but he has to go over it and over it because, as he says, Noddy's bloody bells keep showing through. <laughs> and... um. I don't know this, it just encapsulates everything that for me was about being a teenager in the 1980s, just like, you know, you want to be a bit edgy and angsty and there's kind of punk going on, but you're not really punk. I mean, mm. I think my version of the Noddy wallpaper was that I had uh, these little dolls called Pippa dolls. They were smaller and less fancy than Cindy dolls. And I decided, I was probably about 12, 13, that in order to be a bit edgy, I was going to make them into punks. <laughs> and um and um i don't know why this was a thing but it seemed very important to me so i am i cut their hair and i painted their hair with airfix paint and i did black felt tip pen around their eyes to you know sort of give them very heavy eyeliner and i stuck safety pins through their cheeks which actually worked satisfyingly well and um ripped all their clothes and i i think you know i just i think Adrian's naughty wallpaper really resonated for a sort mm. of similar, you know, if Adrian had had Pippa dolls, he would have totally punked them up. So yeah, it's very, it's, I, I, but I don't think you have to have been a teen in the eighties. I mean, my own teenagers have read the books and loved them as well. I think, I think mm. that it just resonates whatever, whatever generation you are really. The interesting thing is that she said in an interview with, uh, with Paula Yates, in fact, <laughs> um, <laughs> that she wrote it for mothers of teenage boys. Yeah, I can see it that. Really I can see it. For, for, for teenagers. Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, it is really interesting. And, and I think it's worth a little sidebar into the mother of this particular teenage boy because Pauline Mole is one of the great women in fiction. I mean, she is just mm. an absolute force of nature. And, you know, she's just got some real... There's some, I, I, in fact, it's weird because absolutely coincidentally, there was a Twitter thread I was reading recently, which I think, I don't know who started it, but Justin, uh, Justin Myers, who's, who writes as the guy liner, um, mm. was talking about his love of Pauline Mole. He's the fellow who <laughs> does the, the um, Guardian Blind Day. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I love those. Yeah. yeah, I really love those as well. And he's a novelist himself. And he was talking about just everything that Pauline Mole says is just like, it's so wise, you know, and there's only one thing more boring than listening to people's dreams, Adrian, she says, and that's listening to people's problems. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just like, she's really spiky. I mean, I think a lot of people my age, their image of Pauline Mole is totally based around who played her in the TV, the first TV show, which was Julie Walters, yes. which was absolutely perfect casting. She was just so you know, spiky and, you know, being a, I imagine being a housewife in the 1980s, the early 1980s was probably the last gasp of, you know, sort of fighting against, you know, your destiny and it not, and, you know, so Pauline is very much like that. She's trying to, when she's, when she wants to go to work, 
George, Adrian's father, you know, says, you know, won't mind if she has a little job kind of thing, but he just wanted her to, you know, be the breadwinner. And she's doing all these things like going to Greenham Common and she's just sort of finding herself and running off and having an affair, which obviously impacts hugely on Adrian. And she's just an absolutely, uh, she's just really funny. She's just really funny and really brisk. <laughs> um, and so I think there's something about, I can see, I wonder if Sue Townsend's kind of character was slightly channeled into Pauline. Um, I like the thought that she had written the books for mothers rather than the children. That does make a lot of sense when you read it back. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a, one bit of real pathos when when Adrian talks about his mother, when it's, it's when he goes to visit her when she's shacking up with oh, um, Lucas. Yeah. And uh, Lucas was out flogging insurance, so I had my mother all to myself till eight o'clock. The flat is dead grotty. It is modern but small. You can hear the neighbours coughing. My mother is used to better things. I'm dead tired, so we'll stop. I hope my father's been kind to the dog. I wish my mother would come home. I'd forgotten how nice, forgotten how nice she is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know. I'm not. I'm. I'm just got that from memory. It's just it's such a sort of moving, simple moment, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. he doesn't. I mean, it, it is. The book is bleak. A lot of bleak things happen to Adrian, but he generally, he sort of, you know, obliviously wades through them, and that's a real moment of proper sort of, you know, allowing himself to feel really sad about, you know, mm. his mother's left, and a lot of it's done really humorously. So we, the reader, sort of don't. I think there's points when the reader doesn't really think, oh, Adrian's mother's walked out on him. And then occasionally it hits you between the eyes with a bit like that. And um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, I mean, luckily she then goes on to something quite funny after that. And, <laughs> you know, you're, you're back on the funny roller coaster, but there's a real heart and sort of um, poignancy to a lot of it, which I think I'm presuming is one of the reasons for its longevity and why people keep coming back mm. to it. I think it's, it's not mm. just funny. It's really funny, but it's got more to it than that as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a quote from her that I found on um, an episode of the South Bank show that did on her. The norm is a slight feeling of anxiety and unhappiness, and occasionally we're happy, and somehow we've got the proportions wrong. Yeah, and yeah. That, that's, that's lovely. A, that, that's her view of life, I think. <laughs> yeah, she's a very wise person. I think. Yeah. I just think, um, sort of. There's a. Yeah, there's sort of, there are, I mean, like I say, I think I really got a lot of life lessons from it. I can't even think what they are now, but just there's something about a sort of a basic decency in there mm -hmm. and about, you know, who we are as people that, you know, it's not, it's not a polemic at all. And it's very, you know, it's, well, it's not even subtly done. It's almost invisible, but I still think I learned stuff about how to be a person from these books. I don't know that, that, I tell you what I did learn from it, though I don't think I would have ever articulated it at the time or even more recently, is the brilliant way that Adrian just bounces back from literary rejection. I mean, it's just... That's <laughs> <laughs> like a masterclass, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> That's how to do it. He, like, he, sends his he sends his poems off patiently to John Tyburn at the BBC, yeah. and John Tyburn politely writes back and says, you know, I mean, he's very nice, but he basically says that's absolutely terrible. And Adrian just, you know, put he barely, there's barely a flickery, then just writes another one and sends that as well. I just, that's how to do it, writers. That's what to do. You just, Adrian, mold it up, just send another one. It's brilliant. <laughs> but he does do the terrible thing of, of sticking to one disastrous project. 
that he can't shake because he's doing this terrible novel. Longing for Wolverhampton, yeah. Low the Flathills of my homeland. <laughs> which... Well, that's a line that I use all the time. In fact, I, when I started rereading The Secret Diary, I was looking for this one particular line that I use all the time, um, which I knew was from the Adrian Mole books. And I couldn't find it. And then I realised later it was in The Growing Pains and it's right at the end. Mm. And it's when there's a whole business with Adrian, whose terrible novel, Longing for Wolverhampton, um, I think he's been approached by kind of a vanity publisher, you know, who will mm. um, offer to publish it if he pays him a small fortune. And so finally, it, the book has to be seen by his parents because there's no way that Adrian's going to be able to fund this himself. And George, his father, reads it. And his line is, I've read some rubbish, but this. <laughs> and I, I say that all the time. Without, <laughs> I thought for a long time, I don't think I realised where I got it from. But, um, you know, I, that's a line that I, I've watched some rubbish, but this. I think, I, I think, you know, like I say, it's really influenced the way I talk. I think I basically talk like Sue Townsend, <laughs> if she talked like this. But, um, yeah, poor Adrian. He sort of really plugged away at it. And then, ironically, in the last book, The Prostrate Years, Pauline is writing her own her memoirs, um, which sound even worse than Longing for Wolverhampton. So he's, like, he's surrounded by, like, absolutely turgid literature on, on every front. <laughs> mm. Oh, no wonder I'm really resonating with it now. I think that's it. it's like the story of my own writing life. <laughs> Yeah. Oh dear! Listening listen to her talk about writing is is, is really is interesting as well. Because yeah, Sue Townsend, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I I found this interview she did with Gloria Honeyford. There's there's very little, very little, very little you can find on YouTube of yeah. interviews with her. And I I don't know whether she was. I think you'd probably find if you went looking for stuff on interviews with, with from. Martin Amis or something, you'd probably find loads of them, but yeah. <laughs> less so Sue Townsend. There's yeah. probably a reason for that. Yeah. But she said, when she, in this Gloria Hunnaford interview, she says, I'd sooner clean the drains out with my hands than actually write. Yeah. 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 Well, and, I think a lot of writers can really relate to that. Yeah. And I have to do, there's one, one from the South Bank show thing, but I have to do a thousand words a day because I leave it until I've only got a hundred days for my deadline. And that's, oh, yes. Yes, a certain resonance there, isn't there? Yeah. But she wrote a lot. I mean, she wrote, she wrote, she was prolific. She did tons of other books. She did, oh, God, there was that one about the Queen, the royal family, and they they have to live, the Queen and I. Yeah. And, um, yeah, she wrote a real lot. And she did, there were plays as well. And, yeah, but obviously it was, you know, like Douglas Adams, sort of, you know, she had to have a sort of really, you know, she had to like be forced into the chair to do it. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. But I really like the, um, I also like, you know, her story of getting this, you know, to fruition, the first yes. book. And, um, and John Tyburn, who appears in the, in the first couple of books as the kindly recipient of Adrian's mm. poetry, was a real person at the BBC who she sort of just commemorated because he gave Adrian Mole a chance on the, on Radio 4, I think. And, um, I think I find there's something very charming about that, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I really like going back even further than that. I love, I love the sort of genesis of, of the whole idea of Adrian Mole, because she says on one of those stultifying dull Sunday afternoons, my eldest child asked, "Mum, why don't we go to safari parks like other families do?" <laughs> 
And so this mild rebuke set off a memory of my adolescent self, my interior monologue, which was full of self-pity and half harsh criticism of most institutions. And yeah, yeah, and that you, you can build a whole character out of that. Yeah, that one question, can't you? That one whiny question. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's really, you know, his voice never wavers. I mean, it is an oh. abs. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's a masterpiece. There's no doubt about it. And yeah. I think we never really sat. I mean, I, I know this is something that you've probably discussed with um, lots of people on the podcast with their various books. But it's, it seems really hard for people to admit that something funny can also be a masterpiece, yeah. which seems terribly unfair because it's like mm. really hard, isn't it, to be funny? Yeah. Yeah. But there's absolutely no doubting of, you know, it is a masterpiece. So just the absolute sheer clarity with which she nails this particular character this family this part of the world it's just extraordinary and you know I was struck by it anew reading it uh this time yeah the other thing that was interesting was 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 the the, the name uh Adrian Mole I mean first of all it started off as Nigel Mole yes and then they decided that they uh, I think a, a publisher said um well this is a bit close to Nigel Molesworth yeah <laughs> <laughs> down the school so it's changed to Adrian and but then she, she goes on to say she, the whole mole thing is 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 is, is perfectly pitched but she says mole's got four meanings something hidden mole from the wind in the willows mole on the face because he's obsessed with the state of his face <laughs> Also a spy, mostly the spy. Oh, she's. I d didn't realize that at all. No, it's what just, what does she mean by him being a spy? That he's like a sort of, he's coming back to tell us what it's like as a teenager. What does she? So. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, that's it's it, it's worth having a look at that the, the South Bank show thing. It, it, it's you can't find. I, I couldn't find the whole whole program, but there's a sort of twenty minute recap of it that uh, you can find on now tv that's really interesting that there's not much out there about her. i think no. a sort of a retrospective is well overdue isn't it yeah, I, think so. I know it's it's been i think it's been what seven or eight years since she died yeah. <clears throat> and um yeah you're right there is i i had a look and there there isn't that much she obviously was you know she wasn't super self-publicist really but maybe Maybe she got asked to do things and she didn't do them, or maybe she just didn't get asked to do things. I don't know. Yeah, or maybe she didn't hobnob with all the oh, all, all the sort of metropolitan literary types, I suppose, because she, she stayed in Leicester. Yes. Because, maybe she felt, yeah. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say, there's the quote about, there's something about Leicester that's ultra normal. Its motto is semperadum, which means always the same. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and she'd been, you know, she, you know, she'd, Maybe she always felt an outsider. She'd been yeah. she'd grow, grown up in poverty. She'd, you yeah. know, um, it must have been so weird when she, you know, the money started rolling in, which it did hugely, I imagine. Mm. But I don't, I don't know if if you have that outsider feeling, it's probably you never really completely shake it off. I wouldn't have thought that she felt like she maybe was part of the that literati scene. Yeah. No, but yeah. No, I was, I was really. I I was really glad to have the opportunity to to, to reread it because it, it's just such a it's such a wonderful book. There's just brilliant things on every page. There's yeah. you know there's he and again it really resonated with me at the time and now that he in the first book he creates this terrible school magazine called Voice of Youth. Do you remember that <laughs> bit? And 
<laughs> and um, it, it pretty much is beat by beat what I went through a couple of years earlier when I tried to do a school magazine, which was, <laughs> it was called FACPOV, <laughs> which um, is not as rude as it sounds. It's, it, it's initials that stand for from a kid's point of view. I mean, oh. that, if that's not Adrian <laughs> Molish, I don't know what is. And we went through really similar difficulties. The, um, the staff refused to photocopy it because they thought it was going to be subversive. So my dad ended up doing loads of copies on a Gestetner. And we, <laughs> we had loads left over, very much like, you know, Adrian basically sold one copy yeah. of The Voice of Youth because the, the cover splash story was the <coughs> truth, of, truth about Barry Kent, who was like the yob in the school. And um, Barry Kent bought a copy because he wanted to find out the truth about himself. <laughs> But otherwise, they had 499 issues left. And, you know, uh, yeah, that was I had I had about 500 copies left of FACPOV with this sort of, you know, it had been done. It was all in purple ink on the Gestetner. Oh, you young people, you really miss out on the Gestetner. These, yeah, the smell of it. The smell of it. Oh, my God, you could get high on that stuff really you easily. See, God, yeah, if you get sniffing glue, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's just this. There's just something truthful on just about every page. And, uh, yeah. I don't know. I could just, I could like just, I mean, we could just sit here and go page by page and just read yeah, something just, out and laugh. But pick, yeah. pick random pages and read bits <laughs> up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a great bit, actually. There's a really meta bit. In fact, I'm going to find it. Hmm. It's in the second book because, you know, you said about um, how oblivious he is and he suddenly realizes this towards the end of the second book. Hmm. He says, during the month of March 1982, it seemed that both my parents were carrying on clandestine relationships, which resulted in the birth of two children. Yet my diary for that period records my childish 14-year-old thoughts and preoccupations. I wonder, did Jack the Ripper's wife innocently write? 10.30pm, Jack late home. Perhaps he's kept late at the office. 12.10am, Jack home covered in blood. An awful car knocked him down. <laughs> I love that he's kind of realised that he's like, you know, yeah. being oblivious. It doesn't change anything. I mean, he continues <laughs> oblivious. But um, I love that there's this like sudden moment when he suddenly realises that he had no idea what was going on at the time. Mm. Oh, right. Well, I guess we better move on. <laughs> yes. yes. Damn. Yeah. Like, yes. I mean, look, look at the, the, your list of, um, of, of uh, occupations. It, 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 it must have given you similar insights into people to, to to write about in the same way that Sue Townsend because because she she's had she had a sort of wide variety of of, of jobs which she she drew on yeah I, th I mean I think yeah I, I sometimes hear about full-time writers and I always I, I feel slightly sorry for them really I mean I know <laughs> that's that's supposed to be the dream isn't it but I always think oh I would just run out of things to write about if I you know if I hadn't done loads of jobs and continue I continue to sort of do loads of little different kinds of jobs really mm. I like I've sort of I, I, I don't know if my intention span is all that great so I like to sort of flit about with things but yes yeah, she she had she did loads and loads of different jobs that you know really came back usefully when she was writing and um yeah I'd, I'd like to think that I've got something similar mm. um, I, th I think I particularly want to talk about uh, Starstruck which is the book that you wrote for Farago yeah, I absolutely love that. Oh, Is thank it? you. And um, I, I wanted, I, I could spend forever talking about tribute bands. Oh yes, let's do <laughs> anyway, that. Could, do, before, before we do that, do, do, do you want to sort of say a bit about the book and, and, and summarize uh, summarize what it's about? Yeah, sure. 
this is like my passion project my my it's <laughs> it's a it's a bit different from my other books and it was hard to get published because i think it to me it doesn't feel at all odd or unusual but it, it mm. i a lot of publishers it's, said it's, it's a great high concept sort of thing isn't it you just thought so wouldn't you yeah. but a lot of publishers just said oh i really like it but it just doesn't fit i can't see where it would fit because it i think the bottom line is the problem with it is it reads like a rom-com but there isn't really a rom in it it's sort of mm. it's more <clears throat> it's more about women's jobs really women's sort of work fulfillment than anything else I'm making it sound really boring now and um, basically <laughs> <laughs> it's a polemic about feminism in the yeah. workplace no it's it's about a woman called Sally who basically is a tribute act to the world's biggest star and the world's biggest star for the purposes of this book and this world is an amazing singer called Epiphany. And when I when I wrote it, what I had in mind was a kind of combination of Beyonce and Madonna. Yeah, that's what that's um, what comes across. <laughs> yeah, oh great, great. Someone um, <laughs> that's brilliant. Someone incredibly professional, staggeringly beautiful, you know, otherworldly beautiful, really, you know, just untouchably brilliant. And so Sally, who's just an ordinary person, but, ha you know, she has her own charisma, but on a sort of a smaller scale, she is, has been a tribute act to Epiphany for about 10 years. And the high concept part, which comes really early on, so it's not a spoiler, is that pretty early on in the book, Epiphany rocks up to Sally's kitchen. Sally lives in Ringwood near, near Bournemouth. And Epiphany turns up in her kitchen and offers to swap places with her for two weeks, which means that Sally is suddenly playing massive concerts at Madison Square Garden and Epiphany is doing the UK pub tribute circuit. Mm. And the idea for the book came from a few places. Like you, I, I've always loved tribute bands. I just love everything about them. And this was kind of, it was crystallised in by two TV shows. One was a, a piece on the Graham Norton show, which was where he did a kind of a, a trick thing with Adele so Adele yeah, was so in on. I went to did you look at it? On, yeah, on your website, I went to look at it, and it's, it's wonderful. It's, yeah. it's so wonderful. It's very moving, actually. There's something yeah. very moving about it. Yeah, basically, Adele wears prosthetics and enters an Adele looky likey competition, and uh, well, it's just incredible. Anyway, you'll have to go and if you haven't looked at it, go and look at it. It's all on YouTube. And the other one was a um, documentary which is still on iPlayer, I think, which was about tribute acts specifically. It was centered around a venue that's now defunct in crew called the limelight club which always had tribute acts and it interviews some of the tribute stars and there was just something that just fired a synapse in my brain in fact it was it was the man who plays phil linnett in a thin lizzie tribute called called limehouse lizzie and he was talking about you know it's such a fun thing to do you, you know you stand on stage and you're singing these terrific songs and then he said something quite wistful about Sometimes it's hard because everyone's cheering and they're, you know, they're cheering you and they're cheering you, but they're not really cheering you. Mm. You know, you're representing something for them. And he said it much better than that. And he said it much more poetically. And there was something very interesting and wistful about it, about the nature of, you know, and by the time he was interviewed on this, his band had already been going for longer than Thin Lizzy did. And by now, you know, they've, <laughs> I mean, going for way long. In fact, I, I sent him a copy of the book because he was such an inspiration. He's been so lovely about it. Mm. Um, and Limehouse Lizzie are still gigging and they sell out. And, you know, really, I mean, you know, but it's, it's there's something bittersweet, something very 
interesting about being a tribute act and, and you know, presenting something that you really love and it's a, you know, it's a simulation of the real thing. I don't know. I just have complicated feelings about it. And I don't <laughs> think, I don't think even now, having written a whole book about it, that I've kind of finished exploring it because I'm still not sure what I think about it. But anyway, mm. Starstruck is, I'm not, I'm, again, I'm making it sound really heavy. It's a light confection, a frothy confection about what happens when Sally swaps places with Epiphany. Mm. And, you know, Sally for ages is worried about, you know, will it, will it be possible for people to know that she's not the real Epiphany? And of course, will it be possible for, people who are seeing epiphany pretending to be sally pretending to be epiphany will it be possible for them to know that she's the real deal and what happens if they do so yeah that's oh that was a long blimey that was like my ted talk about the book sorry um, <laughs> that's great yeah i the, the, I, I love the names of of, of tribute act oh yeah I, mean, the, I, 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 I went down a complete rabbit hole when i was looking <laughs> at all these i'm uh, favorite ones proxy music Proxy music, that's my favourite. It's, it's just, it's, 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 it's got that sort of sophisticated air about it as well, which yeah. is totally appropriate. Yeah. And there's the Faux Fighters. Oh. I, I like Gabba. Gabba's is, really good. Abba I... tribute band in the style <laughs> of the Ramones. There's also Abattoir. Yeah. What else? I, 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 simple ones like Fake Thackeray. There's, there's, a, there's a folk musician that goes around just performing Jake Thackeray stuff. I get really disappointed when tribute bands don't have a funny name. Some of them don't. <laughs> yes. Um, and it always seems such a missed opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I think I think as long alongside proxy music, I think my other favourite is the Bon Jovi tribute by Jovi, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. which is brilliant. And there's so, there's so many Oasis ones. It's like oh, God, Oasis yeah. and No Oasis and yeah. Oh, that's yeah. That's, oh, fair play to them. And I made up a couple for the purposes of the book. So the one that my children really laughed at, which I eventually managed to squeeze in, was um, a tribute act for the, you know, the singer Sia, who wears a mm -hmm. big wig that covers her eyes. And my tribute act name for her was Can't Sia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, how we laugh. We laugh for hours. I think this is why, yeah, yeah this is why no one likes to hang out with my family. <laughs> The, the, one that, the one that I really liked, and it turned out to be a complete fabrication. It was, it, it was, it was a someone just made it up as a joke, and then so, it's been passed off as being the real thing. But in several articles, is the elbow tribute act, arse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was so disappointed when I found out it didn't exist. Yeah. Oh, someone's got to do that now, surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's up for grabs. That one. <laughs> yeah, no, they're just they're brilliant, and there's you know. When you look at, um, you know, there's, a, there's big tribute act festivals every year around the country. There's a really big one that I, you know, that without giving too much away, the last chapter of Starstruck is set up, the biggest one, which is in Yorkshire every year. And, you know, just, you just look at the list and, you know, you can see versions of the Stones and the Beatles and Hendrix and ABBA and, you know, just um, Beyonce all on the same bill. And it's just like, it's like a dream come true, isn't it? It's like pretty much for a tenor. <laughs> <laughs> or not quite, but I, I can see the appeal. I can see very much the appeal of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, in fact, I when I was in my teens, I went to see the bootleg Beatles and, oh, you know, yeah. was just oh, just yeah. blown away by the whole ones, thing. Sorry? They were one of the first ones, weren't they? Yeah, they were one of the first With, and they're um, still, big, what's, still what's the, the album, biggest. What's the album? Oh. Um, Beyond Again, isn't it? it was the Beyond Again, yeah, they're massive. The yeah, I saw a sort of slightly uh, less well-known ABBA tribute 
uh, voulez-vous <laughs> <laughs> that kick-started after I think I was in my I was a student then and that really kick-started my tribute act love yeah no it's such a, it's such an interesting kind of world it's sort of it's so it's simultaneously naff and amazing really I suppose it's been like it's been like fan fiction almost isn't it yes that's right that's right that's a good analogy <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's better than the real thing, like fan fiction. Mm. Sometimes, you know, because like, you know, Limehouse Lizzie or the bootlegs, loads of these have gigged for so many years oh, longer yeah, than the originals. They, they will have would have played in front of audiences for, for much, much longer. Much, much longer. Honed their sets. I mean, basically, they've yeah. like, you know, mm. done the whole learning their craft at Hamburg over and over and over. And, um, <laughs> you know, they're really, really incredibly polished. Yeah. And, and yet, and yet, you know, then it's not their stuff. And we, we, and we always feel like, you know, the creative inspiration is really important mm. rather than the sort of the copy. And oh, it's complicated, isn't it? I just, yeah. I, I like it. I like the, uh, the ambiguity th of it. That was the extraordinary thing about that Graham Norton thing. Yeah. Is when the real Adele comes on, starts singing. They all know. They all know. There's an, they look Shivers at each other. Yeah. Oh, what? What? Yeah. 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 It's totally shivers down your spine moment because there's no mm. hiding. You know, she's she doesn't look like herself, and up till then they've no idea. And yeah. then she sings, and they. I mean, they're obviously all experts on her voice. Yes. And and they all know. And that's yeah. that. It was that moment. It was that moment. I thought, if Adele. If it was that, that was the first, my first thought was if Adele went on the tribute act circuit, people mm. would know it was her. But yeah. if she sent one of, you know, one of the looky likers to take her place, would people know? I was just, that was, that was like the real spark of it. Yeah. And I still don't know the answer, even though I've explored <laughs> that in print for <laughs> like, you know, 80,000 words, but yeah. yeah. So that, so that was kind of a one-off that you did for for Argon. you're you're usually published by book book or two book or two. Book or two. yes well my last three novels apart mm. from but so I've written four novels in the last three years I think and only uh, yeah three of them for book or two. Mm. book or two, really politely and twice turned down starstruck <laughs> <laughs> because they didn't feel it fitted in whatever I, I they seem to think I have a you know a, a thing a, 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 a mold uh what's the word you know brand um, brand that's the word <laughs> I work with words you know uh, a brand they seem to think I have a brand which I don't really think I do but um they felt that starstruck was very much not in that brand and it was quite interesting because when Farago took it on Pete, the obviously very wise editor who yeah. uh, took it on, said to me, I bet you've had trouble placing this. And I did a proper gasp and I was like, <laughs> how do you know? And he said, it doesn't really fit. And it's weird yeah. because, you know, I, I genuinely, I mean, I'd love it if I really genuinely thought it was groundbreaking. I'd be all over that. I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm a real one-off here. But I don't, you know, to me, it really, I think it just doesn't fit because it's perhaps a slightly exactly old-fashioned they used to, I just think it's a comic novel and comic novels aren't such a thing now apart from yeah. I mean Farago seems to be plowing a lonely furrow with them yes. but um bless them. <laughs> yeah bless them thank god I mean but it's like when I was growing up all my favorite books were funny books yeah. and you know all the books that you've had people breaking down on the podcast they were all my you know I've, I've pretty much read all of the ones that you've had on the podcast yeah. they 
you know, I, I just love funny books. I think it's the highest form of art, really. And I'm not saying that to, you know, to be controversial or anything. I really think it's a genuinely amazing thing to be able to do. Yeah. But I, you know, so many places rejected that book. They all said, you know, well, I was expecting a romance and there isn't one because, you know, basically, apart from a bit of misunderstanding, Sally's happily married in it. And, yeah. you know, I had one agent in America who said, God, I read every single, and this is the long version. She read the 100,000 word version before wonderful Abby at Farago, mm-hmm. you know, timed it all up for me. But she said, oh, I read every single word just in like pretty much one day. I absolutely adore it. I wouldn't change a thing. I can't do anything with it. <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, the irony of yeah. that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, writers get this on submission. They get people, you know, publishers and editors and agents often say, you know, I really like it, but I don't think anyone else will. I mean, I, I often think they're wrong about that, but it was hard to place because it, yeah, it focuses on what does it mean to do your art, I guess? What does it mean mm. to find your voice? And, and but it looks like it's commercial women's fiction, which generally has, you know, something a bit more sort of family drama or romance in it or something. So I think, it's just, a, it's just an awkward mashup of styles that, you know, I don't think it reads awkwardly at all. I think it reads nicely. In fact, mm. I'm very fond of it as a book, but I yeah. just think it didn't quite fit somewhere. Yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, so it is a one-off, but I am currently writing something that I think is in a similar mould, and I'll see if anyone wants it <laughs> when, <laughs> when I've done yeah. it. Yeah, yeah it's always, uh, oh, always interesting to try, trying to fit things into, I mean, I... I, I I struggled to find a publisher for my current series before I found Farago. Yeah, I imagine because you know I read I read Archie and Pie, and again oh. it it's have I got the title right? I have got the title right, haven't I? Yes, 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 yes. and I really loved it. And um, I could I could barely understand the maths, but I kept asking my teenager to explain it to me, so it was <laughs> fine. But I could see again, you know, these are more the sort of books that I read, you know, more like Hitchhikers, more like sort of Tom Sharp kind of things rather than. Yeah, Tom Sharp, we haven't done yet. <laughs> yeah, it'll be an interesting one because uh, I loved it at the is... time, but I don't know what it, how it would how it would I, stand I, up I now. I feel it might age a bit badly, but it, yeah, I'd, I'd still love to. Uh, I'd still love to talk about it. Yeah, someone wants to. Come I mean, and I, talk about it. I absolutely <laughs> love. When I was a teenager, I loved the Wilt books, but I yeah, yeah. I don't know what I'd think of them now. I was no. yeah, I was mm. a sort of very uncritical <laughs> reader then, which is mm. you know, it's quite nice to be an uncritical reader. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. I, I should actually say a little bit about your, your very latest book, seeing as... Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> so the woman, woman who came back to life? Yes, well, I mean, if you know, all my books are classed under humour. God knows why. But even the most recent one, The Woman Who Came Back to Life, you know, Amazon have categorised it under various categories that make sense to me, but also under literary humour it's not it's not that funny so um you know I'm a bit worried if people read it thinking they're in for a good laugh because uh, it's quite serious I, I mean uh, there there is there is a dark humour running through all the book of your books I think and sometimes and the missing letters of Mrs Bright which was the one before that is mm. definitely funny in places but the woman who came back to life is probably my least funny book anyway it's yes it's just about an older woman well I'm saying older roughly my age early 50s who has been hiding herself away in France and then stuff happens. There's sort of family secrets come out and she has to come back to the UK and sort of face up to what's going on. And it's probably, it has been really well received, actually. People have really liked it because I think 
it's one of my most truthful books. I didn't mean it to be, but I was writing it during the pandemic. And I think I was probably just, I was a bit more raw. I'd lost a layer of skin. Like I think we all mm. had a bit. And, and I did write about more personal things than I do normally. I, I'm a massive fan of fiction and I like fictionalizing things. But I think I left in a bit more of myself in that book than I normally do. So I think maybe people are responding to that. It's a bit, yes, I think it's real. I think it's, I think it's got a realness to it. Yes. Again, I'm making it sound like a complete <laughs> drudge. <laughs> uh, but it's an easy read, honestly, guys. It's really easy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, are you a, a, a big plotter or, or do you just write and see what happens? I tend to write and see what happens. I mean, I'm, I wish I was a plotter. Yeah. And you have to plot sometimes with publishers wanting to know what's going to happen. So I sometimes, I, you know, for Bookature, I have to submit kind of, you know, two page outlines kind of thing, which I find incredibly painful and I often don't yeah. stick to them. So I, I, I tend to plot when I get to about the middle of a book. So I write to see what will happen, get to about 50,000 words, and then I have to do some plotting for the rest because otherwise yeah. I'll have lost all the threads. But yeah. I mean, it was interesting with the woman who came back to life because I really didn't know where I was going with that story and I wasn't quite feeling it. And then I got to a bit where my main character was walking through the wood that she lives, her house is in a wood, and she was walking through the wood. And then she saw a man who wasn't meant to be in the wood. It's a private wood. And it was one of those situations, you know, a lot of writers talk about this, where, you know, something comes to you and you don't know why and you don't know what you're going to do with it. And mm. I knew then... That this man in the woods was important, but I didn't know who he was or why he was there. <laughs> and I think if you plot too much, I don't know anyone who plots so much that they couldn't make an allowances for a strange man in the woods. But, <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, that's like, you know, in, in, it's the equivalent in women's commercial of in crime, a man coming through the door with a gun. But, yeah, if, if I'd plotted the book all out, I wouldn't have put that in because I wouldn't have thought of it. So, yeah, I think there's, I think just writing to see what happens uh, gives you space but you have to write quite fast otherwise you forget what you've done yes so yeah, um, yeah. So, so so you are a, you're a quick writer you, you, no <laughs> do you I, for, I mean do you sort of go for a thousand a day or 500 a day or uh, I, I I have to force myself to be quick I am I am my first one wasn't quick because I was learning how to write a novel but mm. after that I've been quick-ish I'm not I'm not one of those writers just two or three books a year I, I take about a year I think but at the moment, because I've got no deadlines, because I'm just writing for myself, I'm only doing a thousand words a week. So that's just bubbling in the background. But when I'm yeah. on a deadline, I can do, yeah, I can do a couple of thousand words a day if I have mm. to. I don't like it, but I, I'm a very messy writer. So I just do, I, I think I'm I in mean, the best analogy for the way that I write is I, the, the book is like a really massive house with loads of rooms. And I go in a room at a time and I make a massive mess in there. I like throw everything around. And then I slam the door on it saying, I'll sort that out later. <laughs> and I, I go into the next yeah. room and mess that up. Yeah. And um, so at the end of my first draft, I've got an absolutely filthy, untidy house. So actually, interestingly, metaphorically and literally. And then I have to go and I have to go and tidy up each of those rooms in turn. I like that. And <laughs> well, what's my process, Jonathan? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the accent was. But um, I know that you're not a, I don't know, you're, you're not a plotter either, are you? No. <sighs> I, I think it's, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't have the confidence to, to sort of say, right, this is, I'm fully committing to this, fully committing to this, this, this thing that I'm going to plan out completely. Yeah. Because I don't know when I started, although I suppose, given that I've, the current 
books with Virago. I do have a contract to do, so I, I, there is <laughs> I do have a commitment to do it. So maybe I should try and talk them out. But it, it always used to be just because I I, I had no idea if I, I was ever going to get anywhere with a particular particular concept. So you just start off and see if it works. And yeah. usually it fades and dies after about two thousand words. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You just got your you just got your latest one in, didn't you, to the editor? I, I've, yes. been follow, I've been following this saga with interest. Oh, yeah, it, it, I, 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 Abby's been very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> no clues, no hints. <laughs> oh no, I'm sure she'll love it. <laughs> so we well, shall see. We shall see. Yeah. The end of the month, I think, is her deadline. So we'll we'll, we'll see what she says about it. Exciting. <sighs> anyway, uh, I think I think we've probably covered everything. It's yeah time. yeah I don't know anything else that's it I'm empty yeah. I'm emptied out I know nothing else <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much for coming on no thank you for having me it was really it's really nice to such lovely opportunity to revisit those amazing books and just yeah. you know and really nice to be reminded that they were really brilliant it wasn't just my yeah. my rose-tinted memory they are absolutely <laughs> terrific yeah absolutely well this place is intended to be free from adverts, as if anyone would pay to advertise here anyway. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to reward us by buying our books. Beth is on Twitter as Dr. Beth Miller, and her website is at bethmiller.co.uk. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter? I'm on Twitter <laughs> as John Pinnock, and my website is at jonathanpinnock.com. This podcast now has its own Twitter account as litbuttpod, and DMs are open. Or email me on litbuttpod at gmail.com. And do please rate, review and subscribe so that other people find out about all the fascinating stuff here. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to the poet Robert Garnham about Miles Before Miles, the collection of Flann O'Brien's early work as Miles Nigopoline. See you then. <laughs>